God. He has risen. From the reading at the lectern, I wish to repeat the following verses. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. On the seventh day, the child died. Although there is plenty of biblical evidence for a type-anti-type relationship between David and Jesus, I would not recommend our text this morning as the place to begin looking for that evidence. David, a type of Christ? Not in this text. When it comes to sinning, David hits a grand slam in this reading and clears the basis. In the David-Uriah-Bathsheba triangle, David violates at least half of God's Ten Commandments. He lusts, he commits adultery, he murders, he covets, he steals, and he lies. His behavior is the stuff of which soap opera is made. David's confession in our text, I have sinned against the Lord, is indeed an understatement. Types, of course, don't have to be perfect in order to foreshadow anti-type. Similarities in, in some respects don't require similarities in all respects. We know that. Think of some of the other biblical types for Jesus. Look at Moses. Look at Joseph. Look at Jeremiah. They all had their bad moments, but as bad as David's? Hardly, at least not as David is portrayed in our text this morning. Still, I'd like to argue for the typological character of this text. Only I'm going to look for the typology, not in its central character, King David, but rather in a minor character, the nameless child who died. In some ways, that child fills the bill for the type-anti-type relationship. The death of that child hardly seems fair. It bothers me. Maybe it bothers you, too. Why should he be the fall guy? Depraved David gets off the hook, and his child dies. It doesn't seem right. Why did God allow this? Maybe to show that sin, even when completely forgiven, still has consequences. Maybe to show David that the incredible grace he received from God was not cheap grace. It came at a cost. I don't really know. The only reason our text supplies for God's action lies in verse 14. Because by doing this, you, David, have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. Anything besides that is mere guesswork. But uh, let's get to the typology. Typology that will take us right 
to the heart of the gospel. By now, I'm sure you've seen the direction this sermon is going, and uh, the rest of my words are probably superfluous, not an uncommon feature in many sermons. David sinned horribly, sensationally, yet he is forgiven. He gets off scot-free. You and I are in a similar situation. Everyone here this morning, the people in the pews and the parson in the pulpit, has sinned. Maybe our deeds don't uh, quite match David's, but the thoughts in our hearts are every bit as sensational and soap operish as David's deeds. We don't want to let those skeletons out now, do we? Don't worry, I'm not going to. God knows, and that's bad enough. But here's the surprise. God says to each of us this morning, in the words of Nathan, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die. Not going to die the second death, of course, uh, the one called hell, and even the first death, the death of the grave that we will experience, won't really be a death because Christ has changed it into the door to heaven. Why don't we die? Because God, too, has a child. We've heard all about that child during the Christmas and Epiphany seasons, and during Lent, we heard all about that child's death when he grew up. Why did God's child die? He had no sin. He was absolutely innocent, far more innocent than the so-called innocent child in our text. Yet, God's child dies. Worse yet, he dies on account of us. He dies because of our sensational and soap opera sins. And he dies in our place. You see, Jesus wasn't born into sin like David's child and, and like us, no. But he bore our sins, our sins, mind you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, says Peter. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, says Paul. We do the sinning, he does the suffering. A suffering climaxing in death by crucifixion and in the agony of hell itself. We're the guilty ones. He's the fall guy. Jesus takes the blame and Jesus takes the rap. You see, God's grace was not cheap in our case either. It came at a cost. It meant the death, the life of a child, God's child. It isn't fair, it isn't right, but boy, it's good news. We, we get off scot-free. We're even sin-free in God's eyes, and therefore, we're home-free, and heaven is our home. David's later and greater child, the risen Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Jesus of Easter, has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, and uh, he's waiting for us. So what's the point of today's sermon? Remember the nameless child in our text. Remember that 
child. Why? Because doing so will help us to remember God's child, Jesus Christ, and all that he did for us. When David heard about the hypothetical sin of the hypothetical villain in Nathan's parable, uh, namely the rich man who appropriated a, a poor man's lamb in order to feed an unexpected guest, David speculated, according to the New Living Translation, David speculated that it would require four lambs to make up for the sin of stealing and killing the poor man's lamb. David was wrong. It took only one lamb. And that's the lamb we're calling attention to this morning. Remember that lamb, the Lamb of God. We sing about the lamb. Amen.